Hi, good morning everyone. Thank you for joining. This is Seeking Sustainability Live number 203. And today we are commemorating the 10th anniversary of the Tohoku disaster and talking with two very influential people for that area in helping support the local people and rebuild. Thank you so much for joining Angela and Erwin. Thank you for having Thank us. For having so wonderful to have you guys here. I would love for you to talk a little bit about your lives in that area before uh, 2011, before the disaster. Erwin, you want to start? Um, sure. So let's see. The first time I, I went up to the Tohoku was during uh, Sakura season. And I remember driving up there with my daughter Paula and some friends, some teenagers. And we went to Hirosaki, and I was amazed. It was so beautiful. It was so green. And I just, for until that time, my only image of the Sakura was maybe Ueno Park in Tokyo, which is beautiful in its way, but nothing compares to, to just the raw power of nature anyway. So I was pretty impressed by that. I went back to Tokyo and I told my wife, but then I remember saying, oh, but that's so far. <laughs> I probably will never be back up there. But anyway, to make a long story short, we end up up there and we had a, we opened a school, a kindergarten, an international English school. And we were there for 10 years. And so we went up and down the Tohoku area, Sendai, the coast, and we got I got very used to that area. I love that. I love this area, the, the countryside, the nature, the waters, the air, the food, <laughs> the people are amazing. Anyway, so we had been there for about 10 or some years, or I forget exactly. But anyway, when the disaster struck, that was where we were. And at that time, I remember Paula was living in Amori with her husband and one of her daughters. And one of my sons was married, living in Sendai, and the rest of them were living in Tokyo. Angela, do you want to talk a little bit about uh, what you knew of the area before the disaster? So as you mentioned, as, as my dad mentioned, it's very far away. So my memories are sitting with my dad, driving the car down from Aomori to Tokyo with one of those old Atlas maps and like helping him navigate. And we were always trying to fight. My dad does not like traffic or any serious, uh, traffic of any sort. So we were always trying to find shortcuts or like these bypass roads. So I have these fond memories of looking at the maps. And, and of course, as I'm doing that, I'm reading the, the names of all these towns. So when the disaster happened, that was the first thing that struck me as I started to see these names come up on the news and it kind of triggered these memories in me. And I was like, oh, that, oh, it's that area. Um, other than that, um, although Almodi is so beautiful, it snows a lot. So for a teenager, I was kind of half glass empty sort of point of view on Almodi. Although now I do uh, what my dad said is so true. It's just one of the most beautiful spaces I've seen in Japan. Um, do you want to talk a little bit about uh, where you were and what you did when you heard about the disaster or when you want to start? Sure. Um, so it was a Friday. It was about 2.46 in the afternoon and we felt this incredible jolt and it kept on going and going and going and we could hardly walk. I was at home working at home. My wife, Judy, was at the school. They all ran out in the street. Uh, they were holding onto the pole. People couldn't walk. Anyway, it was the most amazing and impacting experience I've ever had. And uh, right away, the power went out. So we were quite unprepared. <laughs> we didn't have any batteries. We didn't have any radio. Anyway, we tried to call people. There's no way to get a hold of anything. But then by um, people were streaming or whatever, the news were coming online, actually from overseas. That's what it was. The, the local news were jam-packed. There was no way to get through. But overseas began to, to broadcast. And so we saw, we began to see that this thing was just traumatically. It was the biggest cataclysm that I ever imagined. And um, 
I mean, of course, this is a few years after the great tsunami in Asia. So we were kind of, we knew that a tsunami meant something really, really bad. And so that was Friday. Uh, we spent the night in the cars most of the time because there was no heating, it was snowing, it was pitch dark. Uh, we couldn't go to the store to buy anything because the registers were not running, so we couldn't buy anything. Um, so it's a yeah, it was traumatic. And then the next day we got a we got a phone call from a friend that said that uh, the city hall had called them, and they were looking for a driver or somebody to drive and translate these two uh, Norwegian journalists that were up here, because by that time uh, Tokyo airports were chaos and. There was no way. The only way to fly into Japan was either flying through Osaka or flying to the north. So these journalists had made it through the north, and they were waiting to get a ride or something. So we 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 managed to we agreed. We decided to drive with them, and I went to the police uh, uh, main headquarters, and they gave me a special pass because nobody was authorized to run on the highways. So we got on the highway. And we start driving. And the first place we went was Miyako. And that was the first time I got, we actually saw what happened. And it was pretty traumatic. It was like, uh, uh, it's just hard to describe. And while we were there, the two journalists got news that a big a city had been completely wiped out. And that was Minami Sanjiku. And so they were trying to get down there. And so we decided to try to drive there. And so we made it, we made it, but the, we made it to a point where they had a checkpoint and they were not letting anybody in. And uh, because the sirens were still going, there were still tsunami warnings. And we couldn't see the city, we were behind some hills, but we knew that we were near. And while we were there, be, the foreign crews of uh, TVs, ABC, CNN, they all began arriving. And uh, no, 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 you can't go, you can't go. And I don't know how, but we, this friend and I that we were driving to journalists decided to talk to some people there. And for some reason, they let us go through. So we drove into the Minami Sandvik. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> anyway, it was just horrible. It was just like, the sea was black. It was fire, there was smoke, there was fog, there was snow, and everything was everywhere. And this eerie silence, except for the sirens. And, and every, just imagine everything from everywhere, everywhere. You could see toys, personal items. You could see every. It was just, anyway, traumatic. I felt like my soul was being sucked out. So while the, while the journalists were doing their job, I we went to the, the one of the schools that had become a shelter and I asked the moms well what do you need and they says well we need it's freezing cold and there's no way to wash anything we need underwear for the kids and socks and we need lotion and hand cream for us and so I thought oh well we can maybe get some of those things so I called my wife and I told her how about if the moms there help us to collect some things and that's how it began so well, I was down there, Judy and my daughters began to collect stuff and the word spread and pretty soon, I called some of my contacts, city fathers in the city that began to send trackloads really of stuff. So our school turned from a school to a warehouse and we began sorting things out and boxing according to categories and all this and that. And I think three or four days later, we had a convoy of four little trucks ready to go. And that's how we began. That's so powerful and so amazing. Um, and the, you were so privileged to be able to get in and help. But of course, you, yeah. as one of the first few people allowed in, you saw it at its yeah. worst before any of the yeah. professional volunteers were able to get in and help. That's amazing. Thank you for sharing. Uh, Angela, do you want to talk a little bit about like your perspective on that day? So the, the story where dad is, hears from the survivors and calls mom, 
that was the day I got the call from my sister, Paula, who was there. I think this was the 14th of March. And I had been in Tokyo and I was with my older brother. We had sort of, you know, evacuated to his home. Um, and it was just, we're thinking of putting together a volunteer team. She told me the story of what you just heard. And I said, okay, I'll come. So I went out and bought a plane ticket. And then my brother was like, are you sure we should be escaping to Osaka and moving away? And they had an eight-month-old. So we, I kind of was like, yeah, we don't know what's happening, but something was just telling me that it was this was the right thing to do. And so my daughter and I, she was eight at the time, we flew to Aomori. And by the time I arrived, as you know, Erwin shared, the, the school was already becoming a warehouse. Um, and so I just pitched in and helped where I could with PR and getting more supplies. And then you know, we rented trucks and uh, Paula was really influential in getting the Facebook page up and running and PayPal so we could get donations. And then, um, yeah, the 19th at 5 a.m. with those four vehicles, we took off to Minami Sandiku. I'm, I'm showing the picture now, one of your cars just stuffed full of bedding and clothing. Um, how did you collect all of this? Was this just putting out a call to friends and collecting items or were people bringing things by the school? All of the above. Uh, yeah, but all, all the above. Almighty cable television came by, didn't they? Yes, they did. So there was like a wide reach within Aomori. And from what I understood was that as a city, you know, because they're not set up to help or the, like Minami Sandiko is not set up to receive, a cities actually cannot donate during that period. So they had said in this message that if anybody wants to help, go to the Ortiz Global Academy and drop off what you want. And people in Aomori just came. That's amazing. Um, besides the, and I, I heard your great interview with um, Nick, Angela, talking about what can you do as non-professional volunteers? And I thought that was really interesting. And uh, you basically were saying your biggest role was just supporting local people was what you, you came to. That's, that's something you can do and can do really well. So what were some of the programs you started doing after the initial delivery of essentials of clothing and food and water? What was the next step for you in that process for both of you? So the immediate need for supplies actually lasted over a year. So I think Erwin can probably speak more closely on the details, but we had a contact or a friend up at the Misawa Air Base, right. and they donated hundreds of thousands of tons of water bottles. And we found out that that was a gap that was not being serviced. So people were being given 250 to 500 milliliters of pet bottle per day. That was it. And there was no running water. And so that was a huge need for communities. And so I think, Dad, you were organizing the trucks, logistics back and forth from Aomori yeah. to Minami Sandiku. I was in Minami Sandiku organizing the distribution of the water to <clears throat> local community leaders. I remember, I remember going to the Misawa base with our little uh, quarter ton truck. To pick up the water and the forklift to load it up was bigger than a truck. <laughs> so we realized, oh no, we better go back and get the big trucks. <laughs> so that's how we began. So that was a great help. So basically, people working everywhere in all kinds of situations formed the network. So we had our contact in Misawa, a very dear good friend who has passed away, by the way, Simon Bernard. And uh, he connected us with the base, and the base decided to support our efforts. And the people in the community began to help. And so it all it was just uh, all these people wanting to do something, finding a place like a cog in a machinery to just do your little part. And that was what moved all these things. And that was and the yeah we yeah. That we was have the no experience in this. It was a learning ex <laughs> as we learn as we go. <laughs> yeah, I think you said that in your talk with Nick as well, Angela. You went from being a, a teacher to a disaster organizer and a volunteer and shifting that role 
really quickly and same for you Erwin you didn't come from like a disaster management background right both of you just saw the need and learning as you go that's amazing yeah 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 I guess it was like uh, just like that terrible wave of disaster there was a big wave of of wanting to help by many people and so if you got on board of that you just carried you too so that was that was very nice to see how uh, people helped and gave what they could. So where were people sheltering? I, I'm trying to remember back. I was in Japan at the time, and we were trying to get mm-hmm. as much news as possible. Was it in, like, school buildings or public halls? People were still sheltering and then moving into temporary housing after a few months. Yeah. Is that right? And that was after quite a while. The, the 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 big blessing of Minami San Rico was that all the high schools and the schools were in higher ground. So and it was just before time to leave. So a lot of the kids survived, and also immediately the schools became the the shelters where things were to be deposited and where supplies began arriving. And one good thing that we had was that Angela had worked at a hotel in Amori and she had a connection with uh, with uh, with somebody who had moved from the Hotel Amori in Amori City to the Canyon Hotel. And the people in the Hotel Amori were wondering, how was he doing? So they told us, why don't you go and find out? And so maybe, Angel, you can go ahead and tell that story. That's uh, That was an important part. That's true. That connection was like crucial, I think, to to the whole evolution of what became Place to Grow because Dad and I drove up to the hotel and it was all dark and shut down, but you could tell that it had survived the majority of the disaster, but inside was like abandoned and dark and there were whiteboards showing that, you know, people were living there. And then there was so, and everyone's like hunched over with these big jackets that are ripped and torn. And I was like, oh, hi. I just walk in with like this, you know, energy. I didn't know how to behave. So I just pulled out your, your persona and was like, hey, I'm looking for Yosuke. And she just looked at me like, oh, my God, who are you? He's a crazy person. But then, like, maybe three minutes later, Yosuke came out, and he was just like, oh, my God. And so I gave him this package of letters from his grandmother, and we went back to Aomori and seriously considered what we should do as a family because, you know, the Fukushima situation was exploding, and especially the news coverage was pretty much like it's Chernobyl and everybody should leave. Um, so we sat down, but it was my younger brother, Jesse, that kind of just reminded us all like, you know, Japan's our home. His wife is half Japanese. Like we, he was born here. He was like, why would we leave now? And I just remember me and my, like all right. of us were just like, yeah, we know this. Okay, let's get to it. Then I called Yosuke and I said, okay, we want to come down for a few more days so that we can understand what is the need and how does someone like us how do people like us really support them? And so it was really the, the conversations that we had being newbies, just asking questions and prompting them to sort of assess, self-assess that gave us the, the insights into what we could do for them. And then as Erwin said, suddenly within a few weeks around us started to form this massive network that spanned the globe really of people saying, how can we support? Here's donations. What can we send? Let me introduce you to this company or let me introduce you to this NGO. And I was just sort of, you know, okay, okay. All right. Let me take that call. I had two phone phones that literally for six months, never, like I never said goodbye. I always was saying, oh, I've got another call got another call it was pretty intense wow doing when did you get the idea that well let's do something special for these people let's try to plan a christmas event because i think in in the following years it took almost a whole year to create santa soul train which we'll talk about later but even in this first year you created quite a big Christmas event. That's amazing. Can you talk about that a little bit? So as I mentioned, we had the first project in 2011 was the distribution system. And this was in partnership with local leaders. So somewhere, I don't even remember, sometime, not that like early in the year, it must have been November or December, or sorry, or October. And I remember just feeling like, 
God, what can we do to cheer them up? Because what had happened was everyone had moved. So like the Hotel Caño itself became a shelter. And I remember working there and hearing people really depressed and just so much sadness and and yeah. they're drinking and they're just, it was such a painful space to be because it's such a beautiful hotel, beautiful panoramic view of the sea, but now it's a panoramic view of all your loss. And this really impacted them. So we were just like, okay, how do we cheer them up? And growing up in Aomori, our family, dad and mom, they always threw just the best Christmas parties. And I would bring my friends and they would tell me like, oh, it's like going to another country for a day. That was my memory of like, okay, why I wanted to do a Christmas party. Do you remember anything else, Dad? Um, no, I think, uh, I don't know, a spontaneous explosion of <laughs> what to do. And the, the idea came up. And I remember, um, oh, Misawa again provided the turkeys. Yeah. And we got this uh, chef from, we got this chef from Amori to come and help us. And uh, yeah, everybody began pitching in. And um, I was working, I work as an advisor for this Japanese company that deals with hotels and restaurants. So they lend me their ovens. So we, That's anyway, right. we began. <laughs> We began cooking turkeys. <laughs> yeah. And, um, and we we got a band coming, two bands or three bands. There was like three bands. Just people that, so there was a choir from Amori that wanted to go down. So they went down there too. So anyway, that's how it began. And the first and party was, was 125 people. Right. Uh, get like local guests and maybe 20 or 25 volunteers, mostly from Sendai some from Tokyo and then from Aomori. And I just remember the moment the band started playing and suddenly these old old grandfathers and grandmothers yeah, were yeah. on their feet dancing. And I mean, like I didn't even expect this from, you know, pe Japanese people who live in Tokyo and they were just so happy laughing and dancing and hugging and we had like these young volunteers from Sendai University students dancing with you know 80 year old grandmothers and it was just so joyous um that I think well for us anyway but I as I I think I've said this before like um I never thought that project would continue I thought that was just a one-off and it was just something fun to cheer them up and then when we moved into 2012 we start but but I think that also helped us realize that oh this kind of emotional support is actually really valuable and it's something that us as let's say non you know emergency response or uh, professionals can do and so we started yeah. to do monthly events actually in Jan in 2012 2013 monthly events uh, just bringing the, the families together and we would have birthday cakes for all the children because they don't have homes and spaces to have celebrate their birthday. So we'd have joint birthday parties. We would do games. We even would do themes like we had Irish Day. We had the British Day. We did the American Day. And I remember the old ladies going, oh, yeah, the American sweets are much sweeter than the British scones, for example. And <laughs> these conversations, well, we were facilitating that space where they could let loose and smile and laugh and right. reconnect. And I think, yeah, I think I, something very interesting is that uh, I remember the connections that you had, Angela, or I don't know how we got uh, people to donate beers, wines, different companies began pouring things in. And so the local people began experiencing uh, another world, really, because it's, it was like their world was taken away. It was gone. There was nothing left. But here, all of a sudden, this outpouring of uh, care and practical support from people from all over the world was flooding in and kind of helping them to, to kind of feel that they're not alone and that uh, not what was taken away was being replaced by something in some, you know, in a small manner, kind of help them. So that was... That reminds I remember me. the old... I remember no, the old people that you were mentioning because we had some beer donated from Ireland and they were sitting in there at the table reading the label in English of these beers and they were all like, wow. Anyway, just little things that made their, that day, that night was really special. Yeah, something on that note is like, 
I would often have to go in for tea and pickles to chat with some of these local leaders to find out how they're doing in order to make the distribution system and the projects run smoothly. Um, and, you know, they always wanted to serve something. And then I remembered, I think this is a year in, they were like, oh, yeah, we've used olive oil to make the skemuno. And so what dad was talking about, yeah, you know, everything was taken away. And then suddenly they're trying to piece it back together. And it is coming from so many different spaces and we were really just the point person because like I would be going back to Tokyo and coming back to Minami Sandiku and Erwin Almori and to Minami Sandiku and I would just go to meeting after meeting after meeting and people would introduce me to someone else and they would be like oh that's great yeah here have some beer or have some backpacks or have this box of shoes and then I'd be like okay great I know who we can give these to and then kind of worked like that. That's wonderful. So I'm, I'm showing pictures from the 2012 Christmas party. Um, it looks like you've got so many local people really actively involved in organization, helping cook the food. It's not just you guys coming in from the outside. It's a, a really a, a lot of local effort. Is that right? Yes. 2012, you know, we had been doing those community events and then September came and they came to me. I remember because I was so shocked and they were like, can we do the Christmas party again? And then they were like, yeah, we can do this part. Can you do that? And then we just brainstormed together. And that was, then it was like, so the first party was like 120 people. And then this was boom. It was like 450, like max capacity of the hall. Yeah. And they, they did a moved lot. moved us into the big hall. <laughs> yeah. They moved us upstairs into the giant hall. Uh, and so, yeah, then from then on, it was always a collaborative effort between, I mean, many different stakeholders, including the local the hotel, local business owners, and then the, the community leaders. And was it from this year that you started collaborating with international schools to get kids around Japan writing messages and giving the stockings? So we were always collaborating with schools into the international schools, like from the middle of 2011 and also the Misawa uh, military base. We always had families coming down. The card component, again, comes from a really personal place. So my mom keeps all the beautiful holiday cards from her relatives and she decorates the house with them at Christmas. And so it wasn't until 2013 that I, so they were just getting stockings in 2012. And then 2013, I was like, you know, I really love this idea of how do we build that pen pal ship? And so the first year it was just them receiving cards. So from like donors and so the schools in Tokyo. And then the next year, you know, we had them, hey, why don't, why don't we, we do a, a card workshop before the event so the kids could say thank you to sponsors and schools and things. And so every year it's kind of evolved a little bit more. And then in 2000, was it 2014 or 15 when the Nepal earthquake happened? Ah, uh, yes. Um, then we had a group of children there that we did a workshop and we had them write cards to children in Nepal. And we actually were able to raise right. funds and stockings right. over to there. Yeah, great. Um, and you think having, Erwin, having that connection already to international schools, did that help you reach out to other international schools around Japan or was that just a coincidence that you had a connection with so many schools around Japan? Well, Angela's the one that had the connections with the, the, the schools in, in, in Tokyo and in that area. These were, these were families of the children that I used to teach. So these were my students. But then also the fact that my parents had an international school just so it, it, it helped everything make sense to them. And right. so I think that was really valuable in terms of um, choosing when they were like, where should we support and where should we go? And so the principal of Nishimachi International School came up and helped us sort boxes. And then he came up and was our Santa the first year. I think he was our Santa yeah, for right. about six years. Um, and so <laughs> they were there from day one, always supporting. And then their families would come up for field trips like 2013, 2014, we had a lot of field trips where the families of, of these schools would come up and see and hear the stories. And then, of course, experience the beautiful nature that is uh, Minami Sandiku. Wonderful. And it looks like maybe through Project Tomodachi, you had petty officers greeting people. Is that from the next year, 2013? I've got a picture from your video. So unofficially, they were there in 2011 because it was mothers 
of the petty officers that baked cakes and came down. But then it was from 2012 that we were like, hey, can we actually get like the official representation so that, you know, I mean, at this point, like the mayor was coming to the event and we did need to also show the the stakeholders. This is something I was learning. I needed to show the stakeholders and some of these like PR photos in order to really engage our donors who weren't able to visit. Uh, and so that really helped to get everybody up there. And, and also it really helped in terms of continuing, like strengthening those relationships, making sure they felt grateful. And um, they, till this day, um, the Misawa in military interaction through the Santa Soul train is I think the only place where you still have American military personnel actively involved in local communities, which was, this was originally an initiative by Ambassador Ruse, and it was a military initiative for emergency support. So I'm really quite proud and really grateful for that relationship because um, it's something local people mention a lot. They're, they're very happy when, when the volunteers come from all sorts of places. Oh, awesome. Yeah. Go ahead, Arun. I was just going to say that as as the military personnel is transferred or moved away, they passed they passed the connection and everything to somebody else. So so the that that core was never broken. It was always a continuity, keeping going. And it, that was very nice to see people just wanting to. Okay, here's this is what I want to share with you. I want to pass it on to you. You take over. And so it's kind of like, that's what happened. You know, many people came once or twice or whatever. So we are still here, but we would not be here if it wasn't for everybody else that was there at one time or another. So we crossed paths. And I think that's very important. Even just one moment together, is it makes part of everything. Yeah, that's amazing. It really takes a village, right? Yeah, exactly. Uh, we have a comment from Nicholas. He says, I'm listening along with this amazing talk show. Love Mr. Ortiz's energy. And of course, Angela is awesome. <laughs> Thanks, Nick. Um, can you talk a little bit about the Christmas stockings? Because it kind of developed over time through donations. Um, what kinds of components go into the stocking to make it so special? When did we redefine them? We tried to standardize them in 2015. Um, the stockings were just the easiest way to keep them uniform. And also we knew that's like, you know, we, it's not realistic for us to actually find out what does every child want and then get that present delivered. And we knew that it was also, that wasn't the meaning of the event, but we wanted something fun. So I remember again from my childhood, <laughs> stockings are not usually filled with presents. It's usually like snacks and toys. Mom always put a Mekon in there, something healthy. You were angry if you got raisins and peanuts. But so it's the same concept. It's just like snacks and toys. And then 15, when we decided to use fitness as a tool for workshops, we that was when we, we decided to add like a jump rope or even bouncy balls, or we discussed like, you know, stress toys, or different things. So every year we kind of discuss it from about April. And then we'll figure out what goes in. So, and then of course the card component is, is the main feature of the stocking. Um, let's go back a little bit in 2013 and you had some band uh, playing and when did you start uh, working with performers like Stuart O? Was that mm -hmm. around that time or a little bit later? No, that was after. Yeah, we always had, we had performers. No, 2014, Stuart O came, but 2012, we had this amazing band from Osaka, like a 50-people oh, yeah. band come up, and the energy <clears throat> was electric. And then the next year, we had a performer. It was kind of a country performer, and it was not as ex as not as exciting. And then 2014, Stuart O came up, and we were just like, oh my goodness. <laughs> that's when the train like the soul yeah. train took off and and we were very grateful to like that he was just as excited like he was like this is a great opportunity for me it's such a win-win and then I think it was that year as well that I was introduced to Hayami Yu 
and she really right. wanted to do something. And the the people that live in this area, they are all big fans of hers from you know a long time ago. So when she came up, they were just like, oh, super happy. So we kind of had something for everyone. The elderly re- residents they really appreciated like Hayami Yu, and we have another performer called Charlie who sings Enka. And then um, they were like, we just want Stuardo. So. He's been part of it since. He's got so much great energy. Um, it looks like in 2014, you were working with some farmers, Green Farmers Association. Is that right? That is correct. Dad, I remember you driving down the first tractor for this project. Oh, yeah. yeah. I remember so that. started actually 2012, and we were supporting some local farmers trying to reclaim their land. Uh, and then we were able to get funding from the British Chamber of Commerce and Refugees International and many other companies uh, to buy the equipment. And then, you know, we just it was buying the equipment for them and then helping them sell the produce locally. I mean, the main impact of this project, it really gave people not only something to do, like a, a purposeful meaning again, but also an income. So yeah, because could- I... I, I, I- until that time, the the farming kind of had kind of gone uh, on the on the second burner or the back burner because the main industry was the sea, sea related uh, production, fishing or growing of the different sea products. So farming was there was a lot of fields that were abandoned, just just left to become jungle again. And so when there was nothing to do in the sea, some people began saying, "Well, why don't we just get these fields back in and running?" And so that's that's how we start. So we we bought our first tractor here in Amori, and we drove it down there, and then he joined this other tractor that was from the '60s. I think it was all colorful and full of flowers. <laughs> it was oh, an easy tractor. <laughs> and so then there was this orange yeah. tractor. Go ahead. And and and, uh, and so of course again we we know nothing about farming <laughs> or driving tractors, and. Uh, and it just so happened that there was this very nice young man from Canada. He was a volunteer, and he had grew up in a farm. And so he was the first one to That's right. teach us how to plow <clears throat> and, and to run a tractor to plow the land. Yeah, we so were going how, you know, Remember those fields, Dad? I remember one field. It was like like the local people were like, yeah, okay, if you want to. We'll give you this land and people because of the distribution system we had built a really strong trust with the local leaders so i remember one day was sitting around with me and my colleague peter and two local gentlemen one of whom was from the ja or he was you know so he is a japan agricultural mm-hmm. member and we discussed the idea and he was like you know it's not impossible it's not impossible if you if you really want to but the farming know-how lies with members of the community who are 60 to 80 years old. So they can't go in there and chop down these trees and reclaim this land. So that's the gap we filled. So we just so happened to have this guy from Canada. We just went in there and chainsaws and digging things up. And we had this volunteer from Yamagata who would come in her four-wheel Jeep and, you know, tie a rope around the trunk and dig it out. And they would tell us what to do. Like, okay, well, we need this all chopped and then put this stuff on the ground and then do this. And then we would go in with volunteers and just do it. Right. Because you would imagine even around that time, what are we talking about? Three years after 2011, um, yeah. that it probably was still difficult to get supplies, food up to the area. So having some locally grown vegetables would have been such a great help to the local people, I imagine. Plus, it, it feels good to know that this is from a neighbor farm and things. It's, right, it's kind right. of a sign of recovery, too, isn't it? Yes, yeah. exactly. It's them being able to take care of themselves and their neighbors again, rather than just being given supplies. Now, Angela, was it around this time that you kind of shifted your career more and started uh, providing CSR opportunities for companies to help out with Place to Grow and to use it as their social impact part of their company mission? Is that right? 
Yeah, that's true. So in even 2012, 13, 14, I was sort of doing that, providing those opportunities, and they would come to Minami Sandiku, and we would provide a volunteer weekend for them. And that's really when I first heard the term CSR and understood that, oh, CSR budgets are something that maybe we could tap into as an organization. Uh, but it wasn't until 2015 that I actually shifted the organization. We renamed it Place to Grow. We decided we can't, we didn't really have the resources to do all the farming initiative, the supplies initiatives, and the community building. So at that's the point when my colleague and I, he took the farming project and launched it as a farming business. So it is now, to this day, it is now the largest producer of long onions in that area. And then I took the... Yeah, he ended up marrying a woman from Iwate, and they have a daughter now, and he's just part of the local community. It's it's By a the wonder. Way, I just got a package from him. Did you? Just Long onion? Morning. No, a box full of octopus. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that city is very famous for its octopus. Yeah, so I took Place to Grow and decided we would focus it on children's workshops and the Santa Soul Train, and we would keep that going. And so that's basically the portfolio that we have had these last um, four, five years, five years. Oh, my goodness. And then uh, from 2016, um, the main events that year would have been similar, building on what you've already established mm -hmm. with the community. Uh, the main focus, the main event of the year, maybe Santa Soul Train. But were you also going up for regular activities as well through the year? Yeah, so every year in February, we go up there for a meeting with the local leaders and we figure out what is it that they need this year. Okay, how can we support? And then starting it, we don't often go in March because it's a very personal time for them. And so I've been to some of the events and it's very sad and, and, and beautiful at the yeah. same time. Um, but often we don't do an event that month because it's just not the right uh, climate. And then from April through September, we have monthly workshops for the children. Uh, it could be art. There's a couple of changes because as they've started to build the right spaces, you know, we had to move around. So it was like at an outdoor space. And then the next month it would be at a library. And the next month it's, you know, an, another community hall. Uh, and then the children that are involved in these workshops all come together from the different communities at the Santa Soul Train. Um, so it's a, bit, it's a bit like a reunion for all the families. Right. And Santa Soul Train is like the pinnacle event. And then we have a wonderful time, and then we say, you know, thank you for this year. And we always sing the song Furusato, the Japanese sort of lullaby, Furusato. We really wanted the children to feel like Minami Sanniko is like to remember what their grandparents, why their grandparents love this town so much. And so we we tried to make that like the event flow would would recognize that. And then also, but you have all these new members. You have all these new members of your community and you have all these new friends and fans. So, so let's keep going. And that's pretty much the purpose of that event. Nice. And then, yeah, I think, uh, yeah. I think go ahead. Eric. I was just going to say that uh, I, I remember that the first time that Stuart O came, um, it was also the first time that I noticed a big change in in the young kids, in the teenagers, the teenage girls, especially the girls and the boys. Uh, before that time, every Christmas, everybody was a little bit kind of like under a cloud and nobody really just, you know, nothing really. But on that particular year, I noticed the girls had their hairstyle. They were wearing Oshare clothes. They were looking different. And then, of course, to our own, put on his show, and that was the perfect combination there. I but saw the, the kids coming to us. Yeah, the interesting thing was one of the moms told me later, because I was like, because from that year also, they started to perform on stage. So they were part of the, you know, the event. And the moms was like, you know, they would never get this opportunity. They're in the little dance club, right? She's like, and here they are performing in front of 500 people with foreigners in the crowd. And she was like, yeah, this is something we would never have dreamed of. So it's, she's like, oh, no, Kochirakoso, thank you so much. My daughter's having such a great time. <laughs> that was interesting. That was an interesting shift to how it evolved for the, the kids to look forward to performing, not just getting meeting Santa. Yeah. And I think it's the 2017 uh, Santa Soul Train video on on your YouTube channel. 
uh, where you're talking with some local leaders and they're saying it's a lot less people living here. A lot of the land is empty and not being rebuilt. So this kind of event, even just once a year, is something everybody's looking forward to, that it takes a lot of planning and organization on their part and your part, but it became kind of a centerpiece of, of your work there. Is that right? Yes. I have nothing to add. It was perfectly, perfectly said. Yeah. yeah. So did you notice that a lot in that area that things weren't being rebuilt in a lot of areas? There is a lot more empty space. Well, you know, first of all, it's, it's interesting to, to realize that it took three full years just to clean up the rubble. So like imagine if it was your house, right, and it was destroyed just to sweep your floors it took three years. And then personal construction begins. But there's a huge line and there's so many barriers to just, it's not like, okay, what you see on the news, like, oh, we've moved out of this phase. There are still people in temporary housing now. There are still people living in abandoned spaces. And yes, there are, there are so many people who have left that it is uh, like dreary and it's a struggle for many of the community members, for sure. That's that's just the reality of the situation. Right. And would you say that's, that's true even now, that there's still a great need for a place to grow to be there and continue, <clears throat> that you, you foresee the need being there for a while still in the future? Yes, I do. Uh, and again, probably the the biggest value point will shift a little because as the local leaders strength and as the town has rebuilt as both of those aspects have come together they're in a position to be leaders and we can now sort of move into the background again and I almost feel like it's going full circle where uh, we are just asking them to now take the the lead and saying okay how do we connect and help you maintain all the amazing connections that you've made so far over these last 10 years. Um, and that's where they don't really have that know-how again. Uh, not everyone, right? So we're, we do work with local entrepreneurs who are savvy businessmen and they're helping make sure that it's aligned with the local needs and we work with the PTA and stuff, but they don't actually have like the English skills to maintain the relationship with, for example, Nishimachi International School or the teachers there. So that's where our volunteers can play a big role in being that bridge. And uh, was it around 2018 or 2019 you started doing a lot of training, like with Sarah Jean, um, for the leaders and the volunteers in Place to Grow? Is that right? Yes, that's right. And this really came about because I realized that being able to hold those conversations and being able to navigate effectively, it's not common sense to a lot of people who just, oh, I want to do good. And while we love that inspiration and that energy, there is kind of some things that you need to, it'd be great if you know. So that was when we realized like, oh, our own capacity development, like us as leaders, that's super important. And so I had a chat with Sarah Jean about self-development and its role, basically like in society, in, in, in you as an individual. And that's when we were like, okay, if we can provide this for our volunteers, they'll have a much more valuable volunteering experience. And then you, you also did uh, onboarding, was that in 2020, to try to introduce the concept and get more volunteers, more people involved? Mm-hmm. So about two or three times a year, pretty much every quarter, we'll have an onboarding session. So anyone who's interested can sign up for that. It's just about an hour Zoom call where we go through the ins and outs of, of the organization. If they've watched this video, they probably don't need to come to the onboarding. They can just pick which project they want to be a part of. All right. And then was it also 2020 that your book came out, Eight Principles? Yes. Yeah. June of 2020. Um, how to not mess it up. <laughs> but I'm thinking of renaming it. <laughs> it's really simple. Just eight principles that I learned over the 10 years that I think will help anybody um, to be a more effective leader. 
So we've got about 10 more minutes. Uh, we kind of rushed through the year, the last few years. Was there anything that we haven't touched on? How about the pub quiz? Did that come around 2019? Is that right? No, we had them before. I also don't know how this came about. I think it was 2014 that we actually had our first pub quiz. And we always worked with the, or we ended up working with the Hobgoblin and Roppongi because there's just the right space. And the owner there, Mark, has always been a supporter. He's even actually raced for the charity and donated, you know, hundreds of thousands of yen. He came to the Santa Soul Train one year and sponsored the beer kegs. And uh, that place, that pub quiz, at first was just really like a, a legit, we need to raise funds. It's a great way to do it. But it ended up becoming a whole nother like little community because that we have repeaters that come and they bring such great energy. And it's always, we're usually always raising funds for the Santa Soul Train. And so there, a lot of them are actually going up on the project. And um, so it's such a fun and effective event. So yeah, it's, there's, right. there's so much. Year, we, yeah. Was the first time we did the Omni channel where we were able to do it online and in person. And I was not involved in any of the planning on that. I was blown away by our volunteers skills and ability to pull that off. It was so exciting. Do you want to talk a bit about your, of course, it's not just the two of you, although you're both very active in place to grow. Do you want to talk a bit about the staff on the team? place to go to? Sure. Well, as, as dad mentioned, like we've had hundreds, I would say even thousands of people come through and help in amazing ways. Um, but in 2015, we were really able to get a good team with, um, now we have Chen Chen who's leading our marketing and Kyle, who's like the coolest, most chill, you know, like when things go crazy, as they often do in the nonprofit world and we're late and deadlines and he's just the easiest person to work with and so helpful and he's a lawyer so that that really helps um, we have Masaya who supports with finance we have Samantha Roselle and Lisa who is actually a, a intern from ASIJ who now helps us even though she's in university they all support with marketing on the programs team we have Heather and Harumi who is from Fukushima so she's really leading the initiatives in the Fukushima area right now uh, we have Inamoto-san, who is a former Mitsubishi CSR manager, who was also there in 2011 at the Santa Soul Train. He's on board. Right. Um, I need a names list right now. <laughs> I'm showing um, pictures from your Place to Grow website where you list all the staff mm. and, and the advisory okay. board as well. Yeah, let me mention Kaylee though. She's an environment, what is it? She environmental sociologist who came over six years ago, and I was like, "Yeah, come. You can stay in our dorms there, and we'll connect you to all these people for her research." And I said, "But one thing I want you to do is also study the impact the organization has on the community, so that one day we can actually really sort of assess like what was, what were the value points." And I really hope that one day that sort of report will help disaster recovery plans in the future on a much higher level because there were so many mistakes that we were making that everybody was making that had been made before in Katrina or in Christchurch and I remember learning this and going why does this field have so little innovation when lives are literally at stake so anyway that was a bit of a tangent but yes no so no Kaylee lives in the U.S. she visits every year and helps us we just launched our advisory board, which has you, JJ, thank you so much, as well as Catherine O'Connell, Annie Chang, who do we have on there? Gavin Dixon, Tova Kinuka, Sarah Jean Rosito, of course, Inamoto-san. Did I miss anyone? <laughs> yeah. you, you've got a great team. So. And if, if anybody wants yeah. to see all the wonderful people who are a part of your team, uh, they can see the website, which I believe, Erwin, you are managing the website so beautifully. I am. I am. So, so I, yeah, I was just going to say that Place to Grow has been a place for everybody to grow in their talents and sharing their experiences. And we are enriching each other by how everybody is contributing and 
yeah, it is like you were saying before, it takes a village. Yeah, it's wonderful. It amazing. We have a nice yeah. comment here on Facebook. Eddie Jones says, huge kudos to the Ortiz family for all the wonderful, inspiring <laughs> work over the years. And the story goes on. Thank you, Eddie. Oh, yeah. Thank you, Eddie. Yes. Santa Soul Train. Eddie's visited us a few times. He drove yes. up to bring the most beautiful, like, wall decoration the Nagoya International School. So, so many, as, as yeah. Dad said, there were so many different people supporting from so, like just tiny, small things. And then we just put it all together and connect it to Minami Sandiku. And now we're hoping, now that we've built like this sort of, this model, right? Like we've had this case study. Um, we do want to provide uh, the same sort of energy and inspiration to Fukushima and also to Iwate. That's always been something that I've thought about because I do believe that it's wonderful to have outside connections. They're very inspiring and they empower you, but really it is the connections to your neighbors and that ability to support each other when you're closer to each other. That's actually the most important thing because when push comes to shove, they're going to be right there. Right. And, and so we, we, I think part of place to grow was always about, we want to help rebuild these communities, like, positive connections within their new neighbors because you know their town was gone their community was gone they're rebuilding it and if even in a small way we can help make that new community a place of trust and joy then i think that's a worthwhile something worth supporting and that's kind of why we're still here um aren't you working on another book angela Yes, <laughs> I'm working on, on a book that's more about like the drama of what we experience. Like, you know, I was on a podcast the other day and as soon as I started talking about it, I like froze and I couldn't stop crying either. So I kind of want to delve into like, what was that like and how did I manage to, because when I think about it now, I, I, I have a lot of blank spaces because they've just been covered up by all the work that needed to get done. But there were so many people I met, and, and there's a lot of stories of survivors that I would love to capture and share. That's wonderful. And, uh, we have just a few minutes. I'd like to mention that you have uh, special pictures and videos and kind of looking back on these wonderful 10 years of activities and projects and supporting local people and stories from local people um, over these 10 days. So from today until the 20th, and then on the 20th, I believe, uh, you have a Facebook Live and you're gonna give us a little summary on Facebook. That, for, yeah, that that's right? correct. We are gonna be able to share on the 20th, we're gonna be able to share stories from a lot of the people in Minami Sandiku, who've been going to the Santa Soul train or who otherwise have been part of our work for the last 10 years. I'm so excited to hear what they have to say. Yeah. Uh, so please okay. do mark your calendar the 20th, I think it's 11 a.m. The links will be coming out soon. Just stay, just keep following us on Facebook, I think, and, and there'll be a lot of really cool information coming. That's great, thank you so much. Um, also, Angela, I believe you're doing a few talks this week. Do you wanna mention those? Sure. Uh, I have a talk tomorrow for a university uh, called Horizon. I think this is also open to the public, so the link should be on our Facebook page and our Instagram. And then on Saturday, I'll be joining a panel uh, from many uh, across many different NGOs organized by uh, the Japan American Society over in California. It's actually the Japan American Museum over there. And so that will be really interesting as well to see the different actions that various NGOs are doing. Um, and that will be 5, 6 p.m. at, um, no, I'm sorry, 10 p.m. Japan time. Yeah, it's hard to keep the time differences organized, isn't it? Um, 10 a.m. Yeah, right, yeah. 10 a.m. 10 a.m. Uh, isn't that tomorrow, um, the 12th, this Friday? This, oh, this is Saturday morning. Is it Saturday morning? Okay. Yeah, but yeah. We'll, we'll try to put the links below this video. And of course, check out the Place to Grow Facebook page, um, Place to Grow Instagram and LinkedIn, as well as your website. I'm sure you'll have updates, right, Erin? 
Yes, sir. Yeah. <laughs> That's all right. I, I'll answer to anything. Yes, sir. Works fine for me. <laughs> But I'm Angela, well it's, yeah, it's it's kind of wonderful that you've had this family connection. I think that definitely helped the organization of not only 2011 recovery and aid, but going on after all the connections to schools, to local businesses. Um, it's so wonderful that you both could join today and tell us your stories. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. All right. Thank you, everybody, for watching and have a wonderful day. Um, yeah, it's always very important to look back on things that have happened and see our progress and see where we can go in the future, how we can help each other. So such a wonderful example of place to grow today. So thank you so much for joining us. Have a great day. Take care, everyone. Thank you. Bye. Bye. You can find out more about Place to Grow and the wonderful work they are doing in Tohoku at placetogrow-ngo.org. If you want to find out more about me and the work that I do, have a look at inboundambassador.com. Thanks so much for joining today. Have a great day and take care.